Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Friday again this week, a little after 10 a.m. on December 15th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everyone. Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Good morning. And Alice Alstein of Talking Points Memo. Happy Hanukkah. So much has happened since we last talked. The Republicans say they have a tax bill, and they say they're going to vote on it next week. But we only have kind of a vague idea about what's in it in terms of health care, right? Who wants, to, who wants to jump in? Well, the text is apparently going to come out later today at the members of the conference committee themselves have not all seen it. It's been negotiated behind closed doors. There was only one public session where they argued about it, and that was sort of just for show. Um, That was a very weird conference committee meeting. Extremely weird. More than an hour and a half just of opening statements where the Democrats said, this is the worst, and the Republicans said, this is the best, and they went back and forth forever. But And they didn't talk about what's in this deal. No, 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 no. It was just broad strokes. But from, That's how conference committees from work. What yeah. I, <laughs> from my conversations with lawmakers, um, it's sounding like the individ- killing the individual mandate is still happening, but the killing the deduction for medical expenses is going to be out. So, so there will still be a deduction. Was, for- you will still be able to deduct medical expenses. Several Republicans said they were relieved that the Senate you know, did that walked that back because that would have been very damaging to older people and people with chronic conditions and all sorts of stuff. Um, And in fact, it gets mm -hmm. more generous for two years. Before uh, the ACA, it was a 7.5% threshold, 7.5% of your adjusted gross income. The ACA moved it to 10. Susan Collins wanted it moved back to 7.5. The understanding, and and there's been some more tweaks to the law and to the bill in the last 24 hours. The, the understanding that we were told a day or two ago, I think it was two days ago now, um, was it was 7-5 for two years and then back to 10. So mostly status quo of law with a little bit of extra. I'm wondering if they're going to be able to pay for that in the end. I'm not. I mean, because of we don't know what happened with Marco Rubio and the and the tax credit for uh, family tax credit, the child care, the children's credit. We don't know exactly the final bill. Two days ago, it was that, um, you know, it, it may not. That's 7.5. They're going to have to find a little extra money to for a number of things in the last Yeah, there's minute. definitely some extra money that has to be And found. it's probably, it's right, worth but saying, the deduction yeah. it's going to stay in. It's worth saying at this point that, that they are allowed to spend up to, or they're allowed to add $1.5 trillion to the deficit under the budget that they passed. If it goes over that, it loses its protections and would need 60 votes in the Senate. So they have to keep it under $1.5 trillion um, uh, uh, deficit addition. And I think that's the question. They, they All these things that were controversial that they took out, it was to save money and they put them back. So now they're spending more money. Right. Mark- and a few other things that were in that were taken out earlier, but I don't know that we've discussed them was that uh, the abortion language, which was um, there was a, pro- a proposal to allow uh, college savings accounts, tax preferred college savings accounts for, for fetuses. fetuses. Um, and um, you know, you could be on one hand, you could think, well, this is a great way to be a frugal parent. But actually, the the subtext there was it was a person who was giving legal rights. It was a it was an abortion policy fight that was uh, taken out because it 
the bird rule. That's right. So the the individual <clears throat> mandate penalties are in. The medical expense deduction elimination is out. A lot of negatives there. Um, uh, what some of the other things we talked about? The tuition waivers for graduate students. So it seems like that is going to stay status quo. That was one of the things that they changed as part of these last minute negotiations. That they're going to have to find some money to pay for. Meaning grad students are not going to have to pay taxes on on yes. the value of tuition that they're not paying. Correct. And the one thing I don't know about, there's an orphan uh, drug tax credit, and I do not know That's how. That's what I was There was a ask. difference between the House and the Senate. The House, I, the House eliminated, eliminated it. The, the Senate, Senate cut it back. It. I don't know how that ended up. I don't know. Uh, does anybody? No, we know. Well, well we no, will, tonight. We, yeah, we will find out when they, well, assuming I'm still wondering if we're really going to see this today. It has to lay over a couple of days and before either house can take it up and they want to do it next week because the 22nd is Christmas. Or, but, but no, 22nd is when they're yeah. supposed to leave for Christmas. I know when, when they Well, do but they also like need this. to pass a spending bill um, by the 22nd. And so I think the goal is to do the tax bill early in the week uh, in case there are some hiccups with it and then have Friday available for passing the spending bill. And Which they, they makes it challenging for certain members of the Senate who say their tax bill vote is contingent on what's in the spending bill. But if they have to vote on the tax bill without knowing what's in the spending bill, then they're just taking uh, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell's word. Yeah. I mean, and that's sort of that's I mean, it looks like Susan Collins, you know, her, her demands to vote for the tax bill were she wanted the medical expense deduction change, which she appears to have gotten. But she also wanted as part of this last you know, the spending package to get the Alexander Murray bill, restoring the, the cost sharing reduction payments. And she wanted this reinsurance bill that that she had introduced. And it, it it's and she looking... wants a PAYGO waiver, which is a technical yeah. thing, but it's a way of preventing automatic cuts, cuts. to mandatory spending programs, including Medicare. That's but the right. CSR bill, the Alexander Murray bill is shaky at the moment. I mean, that goes up and down. You look at, you know, whatever you hear day to day, it's changing. It looked more solid maybe two or three days ago than it looks right now. I think it'll change 400 times between now and next week. It's not a sure thing. Yeah, well, and that, I mean, the other thing about the Alexander Murray bill, and I wrote this story late last week, was that a lot of analysts think that it would do more harm than good at this point, that it's basically too late to put these uh, these cost sharing reductions back because it has, because essentially the insurers are already getting reimbursed. They're just getting reimbursed through higher premiums, which for people on the exchange who get help means the federal government is actually paying them just through a different account. Um, and that if you, if you, Put them back. They would. There would be a whole lot of headache in them having to in the insurance companies having to uh, rebate the the extra and people who are getting you know these great deals because the subsidies have gone up so much. The premium subsidies have gone up so much. It would put those into question. So doing it now that most people have signed up would yeah, be a huge instead headache. Instead of doing it for 2018, 2019, there is some talk about doing it for 2019, 2020. I, so, I think if there's a question about which group of people who use Obamacare you want to prioritize. So. For people who are getting subsidies in the exchange, now that the CSRs are gone and the market has basically stabilized, those people are better off without the CSRs because they're actually getting a heftier tax credit. There's a, there's not going to be, you know, it's a stable market. It's sort of, there's been a lot of disruption, but now people are kind of figuring it out. Uh, it would remain status quo for those people. But the effect of removing those cost sharing reductions has been 
that premiums have gone up for people who are paying the full cost of their insurance, particularly in the silver category, which has traditionally been the most popular category of insurance. Some states have handled it better than others. But if if you're someone like Susan Collins and what you care about is reducing the sticker price of insurance for people who have to pay it themselves, these kind of upper middle class professionals who buy their own insurance, then then passing class, right? this, this CSR bill will pull down the prices for those people. And especially if you're concerned that getting rid of the individual mandate is going to jack the prices up more, which everyone thinks it will, you know, there's a debate about to what degree, this would be something that would mitigate that effect, to, to, you know, a little bit. So, uh, I think that many analysts who are concerned about the low-income population that's covered in the exchanges and who are kind of looking forward to uh, state innovation, they think that this status quo may be better because there's just kind of more federal money slashing around. It's going to enable states to be more innovative. It's allowing people to have a richer subsidy and buy more insurance. But it is costing the federal government more money, and it is coming somewhat at the expense of these higher-income people who are having to pay these jacked-up premiums. So, well, they're right? not all higher-income either. I mean, you can you can be a couple making you know, relatively 70. higher. <laughs> well, they're not upper-middle class. These are they're, you know, it's like ninety-five thousand for a family of four who are paying, and in some states, it's a lot of money. I mean. There's like that count in Charlottesville, Virginia, is like $40,000 for a couple. I mean, there, there's some parts of the country because don't forget, there's this, there's this, they sort of worked out the reality of where they ended up with the market after this, all the year of uncertainty about this, these subsidies. And, the, you know, they, there were people who have come out ahead as, as, you know, as we know, the people who are paying the, the zero premiums. But, I mean, we had all those almost bare counties. We have a lot of states and a lot of counties where there's just one insurer. We had a huge exodus of plans. There is less consumer choice and there is less competition, which is bringing up the premiums. So even though the plans that stayed in uh, away something, it did get stabilized. The the CSR thing did not explode everything at the last minute. But this whole year of CSR drama created a change in the landscape of the insurance market that I don't think you see reverse. And and what do we think will happen if, as seems likely at this point, they take away the penalties for the individual mandate? So there will effectively be no individual mandate. So Susan Collins has been you know, arguing a lot and pointing to all these new studies coming out about the impact of premiums and whether or not and by how much the policies she's to one she's pushing mostly. for. <laughs> A few, but leaning on one more heavily than the other. That that's backing up her point. Um, that passing these these healthcare policies that she's asking for will cancel out the impact on premiums of repealing the individual mandate. But what she's not saying is that this is not just about premiums. Like you said, it's about bare counties. It's about um, people um, going uninsured, uh, and and there's pretty uniform agreement that those would not those impacts would not be balanced out by the policies she's demanding. Yeah, I think it's important to say again that, that you know, the impact of not having the mandate, it's not just people being freed who didn't, who are only buying insurance because they didn't want to pay the penalty. It's also people who will not be able to afford insurance anymore or people who will be in places where insurance won't be available. That's that's sort of the basis of the, the CBO's estimate of, of people who are going to be without insurance. And those latter two groups are people who presumably want insurance. I mean, one thing that I think is really interesting about 
about the individual mandate is that when Obamacare was written and passed and when in 2012 the individual mandate was under attack in the Supreme Court, I think there was very broad consensus that it was a linchpin of the law, that this was a really important provision that kind of allowed all of the other parts of the law to work well, that this was the way that you pulled healthy people into the market, you stabilized the price of insurance, you made it affordable for everyone, and that without an individual mandate, there was going to be, you know, the quote unquote death spiral where the whole thing was going to fall apart, all the insurers would flee, insurance prices would become totally unsustainable, and we would be in this total chaotic moment. Over time, I think that the understanding of how the mandate works has changed. There is, I think, a broadly held view kind of across the political spectrum that it is not the linchpin, that it is you know, depending on who you are, it is an important part or a not very important part, but that it is providing some stabilization, it's providing some incentive for younger, healthier people to buy insurance, but that probably it is not the most important incentive in the whole system. And the CBO itself has acknowledged that it wants to change its estimates of how important the individual mandate is. So for the purpose of this tax reform bill, they stuck with their assumptions that they've had all year long, which it's kind of how the CBO works. They try to be pretty predictable. Every year they come up with sort of a baseline and then they score legislation against that baseline. But they did say in their last report, here's what we think under our last set of assumptions. But there is increasing scholarship, increasing evidence, increasing advice that we're getting from economists who look at this stuff closely that we think we have overestimated the importance of the mandate and that actually next year, if the mandate were still around, what we would say is that it will cause some people to get insurance who otherwise would not, and it will uh, cause premiums to be lower than they otherwise would be, but to a lesser degree than we're currently estimating. And I think like it's one thing that is interesting to me about this moment is that if this tax bill eliminates the individual mandate, there's going to be a really interesting kind of – it's an empirical question how important it is. We don't know the answer. We have never had Obamacare without an individual mandate, and it's a risky experiment. But we're going to learn the answer to this question that has been debated by academics kind of very vos- – and, and political actors very vociferously over these last few years. Well, I don't think anybody could have predicted what the impact of pulling the CSRs was. I mean, that was just – I think that surprised – you know, everybody – when I first wrote the story, which was in October of 2016, um, before Trump was elected, saying, you know, he could do this because of this lawsuit – I think the the consensus of the people I talked to was that this would just blow up the entire market. And yet it not only didn't blow up the entire market, but we just talked about how it might be better if they didn't put them back. Um, so it, but you know. also part, part of the um, evolving thinking about the individual mandate or in part of why it's turned out to not be as strong a mechanism is that it's not as strong a mechanism as the insurers originally wanted. And the penalty w- isn't high enough to convince some people to to go for it. And uh, there are many more exemptions and hardship exemptions and ways to get a- out of paying it. And so and grandmothered the, plans. the concept of the individual mandate you know the the platonic ideal of the individual mandate might might be extremely effective but the individual mandate we have lived with for the past few years is not quite that it's not but so much it's easy to hate though i mean the political the people don't and, and it's not popular with democrats either so the the economic impact because i mean it was 95 bucks the first year the economic and it's only 695 i think now or 2% of your i think 2.5% um the economic impact is less than you know if if there were no politics here and you just had a bunch of economists writing the bill the mandate would have been a lot bigger so the economic impact is less than ideal in the economic perspective and but 
you know, given that it is sort of weak, it's been huge politically. I mean, it was the Supreme Court case. It's, you know, it's what you hear about all the time. And people don't like, you know, the government telling you you have to buy something that you don't want. So I remember going to oral arguments uh, in 2012, which was this fun experience for me to be at the Supreme Court, you know, listening to these arguments happen. There was an entire day of arguments about whether the individual mandate was so essential to the design of this law that if the court found that it was an unconstitutional provision, that the entire law, everything in the law, you know, menu labeling, Medicaid reforms, uh, the you Indian know, Health Service, the Indian Health Service, that all of these things should just be wiped off the books. And, you know, obviously that was a somewhat politically motivated argument. But on the other hand, it was a serious question that the Supreme Court felt that they needed to have an entire day of oral arguments devoted to. And largely that was a policy argument. I mean, it wasn't entirely a legal argument. They were basically saying, you know, you can't take these pieces of the law together because it is so essential to the overall legislative intent. Now we see Republicans basically making the opposite argument. They're saying this is really not that important. It's really unpopular. We don't like it. It violates people's freedom. Uh, but also, like, you know, the republic will stand without it. And, you know, we're going to find out, like, which which version of reality is right. And yet, I mean, but it's hard to know retroactively. It did bring some people in. And once they're in and if the mandate goes out, you know, now they have insurance, they may have found out, oh, well, I get, pre- you know, things that they didn't understand. I'm getting free preventive care or things like that. So it's, it's imp- I mean, we'll never be able to tease out the effect. We'll see what happens if it goes away. But we'll never totally understand, you know, that that imp- what if it had never been there? Is going forward, yeah. but we'll never totally. I mean, would we even have twelve million people in the exchanges without it? We don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not uh, arguing in favor of experimenting on people's uh, lives and access to healthcare, but you know, this is the world that we're in. So let's like think about what, you yes, know, what would be interesting. Right? Yeah. And you know, one thing I wonder is whether any states will, you know, either impose or reinstate an individual mandate. So Massachusetts obviously had its own prior to Obamacare. We assume that will still it stand. Stays. Uh, there are a couple of other states that are talking about it. I think the politics are difficult. And uh, Joanne, I know you said you edited an article this week sort of assessing uh, the chances in even very blue states, and it doesn't look particularly wonderful. It looks at this point, you know, Maryland is probably the most likely, and it's certainly not a sure thing. And there's a Republican governor in Maryland, so who knows if Who's up for re-election in 2018? <laughs> um, you know, California mandate is a tax. California has those quirky rules about, I believe it's two-thirds of the legislature has to approve of a tax. So even though Carol, California is very pro-ACA, very successful exchange, very all-in on Obamacare, getting a tax through the legislature will be difficult. Um, not impossible, difficult. Um, Connecticut has talked about it, but hasn't embraced it. Washington State doesn't have an income tax, I believe, yeah. so they can't do it the way we think of a mandate. Yeah, there's some people. There's some talk about doing it through driver's license renewals or other. So things. there. So the other thing is, if they stay, if the states don't do a mandate per se, because it's politically really difficult, do they do some other kind of mechanism, some kind of other penalty for you know? Right, the other things even we talked about. the house. Even the original House bill to repeal Obamacare had the House and Senate bills had replacement mechanisms that right. some people said would be much worse and and more unpopular than than an individual mandate and worse in the sort of broad sense, but um, Let's so like a lockout provision or you know a hiking your premiums if you go for a certain number of months without health well, but th- this is why the, before and we the, leave but this, they might be oh. more politically palatable I mean if yeah. if the red state excuse me if the blue states or even a purple state wanted to do something. And if, if if the mandate is great on paper, but you can't get it through your legislature, um, you know, they may look at some of these other things. But that if are your more dominant insurers pound. come to you and say, if you don't do something, we're leaving. Mm-hmm. Yes. That could 
But, but my bigger question before we leave this, and we do have to leave this, um, is all year it's been the repeal and replace, repeal and replace. Well, they're repealing a big piece of this with no replacement. Exactly. I How think, did this happen? I think that's so interesting because, yes, in the summer when they were pushing these way, way more sweeping repeal bills, they did have these replacement mechanisms. Um, and you can argue of whether it really would be a true replacement or not, but at least it was something. And now they are just chipping away uh, at, at the Affordable Care Act without... Oh. Um, may I say one, one more thing yes, about repeal and replace, which is that so there was a special election uh, for the Alabama Senate seat this week. And, you know, against all odds, a Democrat is going to be the senator from Alabama. And it looks very likely that this tax bill is going to pass in some form that it is going to include repeal of the individual mandate. But I do think that having only 51 Republican senators going forward really makes it much harder for any other kind of really broad Obamacare repeal bill to go forward. I mean, that might have been the case already. We know that there are several who voted against all of these previous permutations. But uh, Paul Ryan uh, earlier this week talked about wanting to come back at health care again. And I do think that this this seems like a small change in the Senate math, but actually I think is a really important change in the Senate math. And it makes me think that this is probably, you know, the last big chunk of Obamacare that probably we're going to see uh, addressed in the next year. Well, well Medicaid. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we could see Medicaid addressed yeah. in, outside of an Obamacare repeal. But I think to Julie's point that, you know, they just, they're repealing the mandate without any replacement. I think that the um, the two things, the political forces that prevented repeal last year were the pre-existing conditions, which is not directly touched by repealing the mandate. All of us understand how death spirals and things can be... The insurers right. most certainly right. think but that they, they are tied but together. But they did not, re- I mean, they did not directly roll that back. They can say we didn't touch the pre-existing conditions and they didn't touch Medicaid. And particularly in the Senate, what really motivated... What really stopped it in the Senate was the attack on Medicaid, and that's not touched by the mandate. So if you look at the two forces that, you know, I think surprised us for making it that difficult last year, pre-ex and Medicaid, they didn't do those. I also also think just, I mean, this is so technical, but both the large health reform bills and also this tax bill are being run through this special budget process called reconciliation that comes with a lot of special rules. And the replacement mechanisms that the Republicans wanted to use for the individual mandate I think we're kind of questionable under those rules. And especially because there's a big rush on this tax bill, they are very reluctant to put anything in it that could be challenged, that could kind of slow down the works. And so I don't know that there really was a huge appetite for replacing the individual mandate this time. It doesn't really seem like it was even discussed. But I do have some sympathy that maybe if it was discussed that there was a decision made (laughs) that, you know, it's really going to be hard for us to do these other kinds of policy mechanisms that we don't want these things that are going to derail the tax bill because of these technical rules of budget procedure. All right. Well, we we do have to move on. And speaking of the the senator-elect from Alabama in his uh, his speech the other night, he mentioned the CHIP program, which was actually a central uh, piece of his campaign. Alabama has, I believe, 97 percent of its children covered. Um, Where are we on CHIP? Well, in... In the spending bill, that's gonna that's gonna come up and needs to pass by the end of next week to prevent a government shutdown. They are putting in the full House bill on CHIP, which extends CHIP for five years. It expired two months ago. We've been running on emergency stopgap funding ever since. But the bill they're attaching to the CR has these offsets going after Obamacare's Public Health and Prevention Fund that Democrats are very opposed to those cuts and whether they're going to swallow it in order to keep the government open and fund chip and make everybody happy not 
not everybody happy, but you know what I mean. Um, They'll they'll have to decide which is worse, raising a stink over this because of the offsets and the cuts or face, you know, a a shutdown showdown. And that's and it's there's a lot of irony because that that public health and prevention fund includes things that help kids health like vaccines. So you're expanding chip and then you're taking them. I mean, it's it's 12 percent of the CDC's budget. And um, I mean, I don't the Democrats are not going to swallow that one easily. No, I don't think so either. I, I, I think there's going to be some serious brinksmanship before we, we get to the end of this. And Do you guys at- want to hear a really nerdy but important thing that I learned about chip yesterday? Yes, please. <laughs> so it turns out that we talk a lot about 9 million children who are enrolled in the CHIP program. Not all of them are vulnerable to losing their insurance, even if the CHIP funding goes away forever. They are basically in two buckets. As part of Obamacare, states were given the option of essentially rolling their CHIP kids into their Medicaid programs uh, and using the kind of Medicaid infrastructure to take care of them. And the deal was, if you as a state take that deal, then you were not allowed to kick any kids out of CHIP until the end of 2019, even if the federal funding dropped. And it turns out that that's like more than half the kids in CHIP. So there are millions of children in many states who are vulnerable to losing their coverage. But then there are millions of kids in many states who it's the states that are going to be left holding the bag. trying to They, they sort of have this legal promise to keep covering these kids, and they're going to have to find a way to get more money to make up the shortfall. Which means we should, we should, and to some extent are seeing complaints coming from the governors too. Right, um, we've seen Republican governors and Democratic governors united on this issue. They want chip. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we today is the last day of open enrollment, which I can't believe we've gotten this far and haven't talked about yet. Uh, it, it, it's not. There's so many things that are unclear. It is unclear how many people will sign up. It is unclear whether uh, HHS is even going to let the people who are. I'm and and the early reports that I saw today is that there are already waits for help at healthcare.gov. Um, in the past, if you were quote unquote in line when the deadline came, uh, you could finish up in the in the days following. It's we assume that's going to be the case this time, but I don't think we actually know that. I don't believe that they've confirmed. I don't believe that CMS has confirmed that. I mean, they are asking you to leave your name and number if you're trying to sign up and have trouble. Which implies it. It implies, I mean, I think that it's reasonable to say that if the government is asking you to leave your name and number and saying, we'll call you back and help you, that they will. But we can't, I mean, I don't think we can be 100% sure what happens to everybody, you know, my understanding is that in, in past years, even when they've allowed these extensions, they have waited until the last day to announce yes. them because I think they don't want people to have an incentive to procrastinate. So right. it's we don't know what's going to happen. But the know. fact that we don't know, I think, is we, it's hard to read that one way or another. That's right. normal that yes. we wouldn't know. by Yes. Now. And that's what my source at CMS said. You know, they don't want to announce an extension ahead of time because they don't want to impact consumer behavior. They want people to think that today at midnight is the real deadline. Although but it's, I don't actually, think, it's actually yeah. 3 a.m. Eastern oh. because it's midnight Pacific. Right. Oh. So it's the, so if you want to stay up all night and sign up for health insurance, <laughs> go for it. But, but the question is, California. Yeah. I mean, yes, midnight they, they don't want to. Ext- I don't think we'd see them extend enrollment per se. It's the people who are in, you know, in line or online, depending on what state you're in, whether you're an inline or an online person. Um, <laughs> but you know, if you've if you've begun the process and you couldn't finish it, but there's a documented that you you started, I think that there's a fair expectation that those people be allowed to finish. I I would not expect to see an open total. Oh, you have until next Tuesday, everybody. I right. mean, that would surprise me. They could do it. What do we think about numbers? I mean, it's been you know everything. <gasps> there's lots of people signing up. But the enrollment period's only half as long, so we have no idea what that's going to mean. 
Yes, we're we're definitely seeing an, a surge, and the the numbers we got on Wednesday did show a surge. You know, leading up to the final deadline, which, which we typically which get. we expected, but it does not look like anywhere near enough to make up the difference. Again, we don't know how many people will be auto re enrolled. We don't know how many people in the state exchanges are surging at the end as well. We we've had some numbers up till now that are very robust, uh, especially in states like California that are pummeling outreach. Um, and California doesn't... It, it, it's not up to California. It doesn't end until the end of January. Exactly. And so... Uh, and that's nine states total that have a longer enrollment period than the federal one. So we could see those states make up some of the difference of the shortfall, but I don't know if we're going to hit that high number from last year. Which wasn't such a high number. No, exactly. But I don't think we're yeah. going to hit that even. Charles Gabba, who um, probably many of, our, many of our listeners know about, he's um, he's the blogger who's been really sort of astonishingly accurate over the last few years of predicting things. He's he's seeing like a twenty percent drop off in sign up. Yeah, and then it's it's important to remember that we're even those final numbers are not the final final numbers because there's in an even in a normal year there's a ten percent ish attrition rate from the people who the total people who enroll and the people who actually end up paying their first premiums and that rate could be even larger this year people could get uh, auto re-enrolled in plans that they didn't want and didn't expect and then drop out so. or the, or they could sign up now when there's still an individual mandate in effect and then later this week the individual mandate will be repealed as part of a tax bill and they will just decide okay I don't have to have insurance really expensive this year it was kind of a tough call anyway like, except meh. Except the individual mandate repeals for 2019. But I think people I think, might not I know think that. that people yeah. won't know that. I mean, I think I think that people are kind of. I mean, I think a lot of people think it's already gone. Yes, I, yeah, I think you're right. But I think right. certainly there will be some news around the repeal of it that will make people feel. I think you're absolutely no, no. I think you're absolutely sense. right. Even though we should point out that the repeal is for 2019, <laughs> so you're still so you still have to have health insurance for next year or pay a fine, um, unless at some point they decide to waive that. And unless that gets changed by tonight, I mean, the, yeah, unless it's 2018 true. in the in the final bill, if that gives them more money, I mean, we don't know what the final. We know that there's some final changes. We don't know. We have not seen the paper or cyber paper version of the final bill. I can't decide whether this is sort of like a good news or a bad news story. So obviously, enrollment is going to be, or not obviously, but likely enrollment is going to be substantially lower than it was last year. But this was an extremely tough environment. The Trump administration really didn't do any advertising and outreach. They cut the budget for professionals who had done that historically. Um, There was a lot of confusion because there were attempts to repeal Obamacare. There have been attempts to get rid of the individual mandate. There's, the president keeps saying it's dead. Um, and and the president and, and also there's sort of just been like a general ragging on it. So, you know, even if you think it's around the president when he's not saying it's dead, he's saying it's a death spiral. He's saying it's unsustainable. It's collapsing of its own weight. All this this bad stuff. I mean, there's not. And then, you know, perhaps most crucially, the enrollment period was shortened a lot. Uh, you know, only half as much time with a lot less information getting out there and some of that information being confusing and negative. And it's ending right up snug against the holidays. But like a lot of people are signing up. Like I think it does demonstrate that there is interest in this program. There are people out there who really want and need to get health insurance and they're, you know, and they're they're getting out there and they're signing up and it's it's but I but I don't know if it's enough for insurers to feel like this is a market where I want to make a long-term well, investment. Both sides are definitely going to point to the numbers and try to make a political argument. I think the the defenders of Obamacare are going to say, look, even under all of this, you know, quote unquote, sabotage, look how many people, millions, millions of new people who were not in the individual market before have enrolled. That is a sign that this is not dead, that people do want this, that people do want insurance. And I think the other side is going to point to the drop off 
whatever size it ends up being and say, look, this is a sign that this is dying and people don't want this and we should, you know, repeal it or fix it or whatever. All right. Well, one more issue before we get to our extra credits. Um, And I want to it's actually something from last week that we had to hold over. It appears that Medicaid officials will soon approve work requirements for Medicaid recipients, at least those, quote unquote, able bodied Medicaid recipients who were added under the Affordable Care Act. Um, This seems like a no brainer. There are already work requirements for welfare, for example. But Medicaid is different, right? I mean, Joanne, Margo, you guys have both sort of looked at this this week. Well, Medicaid, I mean, it, there's, this is a really sensitive issue. Democrats really hate work requirements. They, you know, that the healthcare is healthcare. It's not welfare. And that the Medicaid law um, does not provide for this, which may be why it, ha- I mean, we've been hearing these waivers are imminent for months now. They haven't come out yet. Um, there, there's a, philo- a really really profound philosophical gap here between the advocates who who just say, you know, healthcare is healthcare. We don't make it conditional. You know, we all need healthcare. Um, And those who say it, you know, look at Medicaid as a form of welfare and say, you know, you need to work for it. If, you know, you want to get it, you you should be, you have to, you know, you have to be gainfully employed or, I mean. But you can't stay home and live on your Medicaid. They don't, don't, Medicaid doesn't come with money. No, it, and it, and and it's this is a real sore spot. But I, you know, the the administration has made it really clear. I mean, they've said it since they, uh, since Seema Verman and Tom Price came in last February, March. I mean, it's been in writing. You know, there's no guesswork about whether they support this policy. They've said it over and over again. I mean, the work requirements do have. Um, exemptions. I mean, if you're, it is, you know, if you're obviously not the disabled, not if you have a little kid at home and you're the sole caregiver, things like that, there are exceptions. Also, it's not just work. It is sort of job training and education and this sort of work-related Volunteer activities. Work, right. But it's really, um, it'll, the minute it happens, the activists will sue. Maybe the second it happens. Well, but, but also, <laughs> I mean, don't most people on Medicaid who are able-bodied already work? Yeah, so most people, there was a good study in JAMA uh, this week that looked at Michigan's uh, Medicaid expansion population. So most people who are getting Medicaid, particularly the kind of Medicaid expansion population, which is, you know, kind of working class adults, are working. Um, it's it's a very small percentage that would not qualify for one of these various sorts of exemptions that are built into the law. But if you look at who those people are, they also tend to be people who have challenges that are similar to the exemption categories, but not exactly the same. So, you know, there are plenty of people who have really serious health problems that make it hard for them to work, but they don't necessarily qualify as disabled under the federal definition of disability, which means they have to qualify for disability insurance. So, you you know, you you can think of these kinds of people all the time. My colleague, Abby Goodnow, uh, did a story a few months ago where she interviewed a bunch of these people, you know, someone who had has really bad, uh, you know, neurological pain in his feet. And some days he can get up and go to work and some days like he can't get out of bed. And you know, that keeps his income low enough that he qualifies for Medicaid, but he really needs the Medicaid so he can address his health problems so that he can get healthy enough to go to work. And um, Joanne's colleagues, uh, Rachana Pradhan and Brianna Ely, whose name I hope I pronounced right, uh, had, a, had a really wonderful story uh, last week looking at people who have addiction to opioids. And we know that in the states that the Medicaid expansion is a really important vehicle for helping people who have this problem get better. If you think about someone like that, you know, they're not disabled. 
They're not uh, necessarily in school or volunteering or taking care of a kid, but they have this really serious health problem that if they can get their insurance and they can get treatment for it, maybe they're going to get better and go back and become a, you know, a really productive member of society again. If they're not going to get treatment for the opioid problem, they're probably not going to be able to get a job. Many jobs drug test uh, for work. So, you know, if you have a problem with uh, these kinds of medications, even if you're physically capable of work, you may face extra obstacles. So I think that the incentives of a work requirement, it's very, it's very easy to understand why people want it. You don't want people kind of uh, just getting all of these free benefits without working for them. But I do think that if you look at this Medicaid population, a lot of them are people who either are working or who have really substantial impediments to work and who may, in fact, be more likely to work if they get the health care through Medicaid. The opioid addiction Medicaid catch-22. I mean, some of the governors that we interviewed did say that they would consider treatment. Like if you're in treatment, they would consider that the equivalent of a work-related activity and you can continue the Medicaid. However, um, first of all, until we sort of see exactly the waiver language and how it works, you know, we have a lot of questions about how they're defining that. And then, you know, getting off heroin or opioids is really hard and people relapse and people are on waiting lists for treatment and people can't get access and people. So this, I can't get, I, I can't get a job because of my addiction so I'm going to lose my Medicaid, but Medicaid is how I'm going to get treated for my addiction. It's this, you know, tragic, endless loop. So, and until we really see how flexible states are with this population, it's really, you know, you're, it's, how, how do you, it's hard, getting off the drugs. I mean, if you've ever talked to anybody or any family members, it's really, really, you know, it's an, unbelievably difficult. I mean, the reason people are addicted is it does things to your brain, right? And how do you do this without? Medicaid has become the tool for this population, and then they might lose this tool, and then then what? Policy is hard. All right, we're going to leave it there. We're going to move on to uh, our extra credit this week. That's where we each recommend a story we read recently that we think everybody else should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Alice, what's your extra credit? So I wanted to circle back to the, this idea that states could pass their own individual mandates or some-esque version of that. Um, Nicholas Bagley had a great piece in Vox sort of laying out the argument for that. And we talked earlier uh, just today about why it will be so politically difficult and maybe impossible for any number of states um, to do that. But what what struck me is that if, if this becomes some a path that the country goes down, it'll just further widen the disparity between the states when it comes to health care. We already have such a disparity on Medicaid expansion between the states that chose to do that and not. Now, with this weird open enrollment, we have a disparity on which states do the outreach. We have a disparity on which states extended the deadline. And the mandate would just be a huge version of that just completely changing whether or not you have access to health care, depending on where you happen to live. Joanne. Uh, there's a story that I just saw this morning um, in the Ma- Naples, Florida Daily News, which is a small regional paper. The reporter's name Maria Perez, and it was just an astonishingly thorough investigation um, and, and really shocking and upsetting to read, which is employers in the state of Florida are hiring illegal immigrants, undocumented immigrants, for dangerous jobs in construction, things like that. Um, with a wink and a nod, sort of knowing that their documentation is fake, 
And then there's a high risk of getting injured in these jobs. And the minute they get injured, instead of treating them and getting them workers' comp, they call the immigration cops and get them deported or jailed So for immigration fraud. So... Um, and the employers are not being <laughs> punished for taking it. It's like one or two employers uh, was, was prosecuted. And, um, you know, and then there are these, these situations where some of them have children who are born in the U.S. and are citizens and they're being jailed and deported um, after suffering somewhat gruesome injuries. And it was a very thorough, impressive investigation going through thousands of pages of records. It's a year-long probe. Wow. Oh. Marco. Well, I was going to mention this Politico story about work requirements, but since we've already discussed it, I'm going to take this opportunity to actually talk about something that I did. So if you are signing up today, if you're a procrastinator, if you have a relative who is a procrastinator that you want to help, uh, my colleague Hagen Park and I published a guide a few weeks ago. We updated it. There's data for every state. And it gives you advice, depending on how much you earn, how you should think about shopping, because it's a weird year. Uh, there's lots of unusual uh, stuff going on in the marketplaces. And I hopefully this will give you a sense of the best strategy for you. So uh, it seems like you're probably going to be online. Go to healthcare.gov, <laughs> call who you're going to call, get in line. While you're in line, uh, take a look at our guide that may give you some helpful advice about how to proceed once you're shopping. And I think I already tweeted that again this morning, but I will probably tweet it again this afternoon. Uh, my story is actually from last week. It's an amazing story, more than a year in the making from my Kaiser Health News colleagues, Jay Hancock and Rachel Bluth, with the help of journalism students at the University of Maryland. It's about how it's more profitable for major hospitals, in this case, Johns Hopkins and the University of Maryland, to treat asthma attacks and asthma complications than it is to focus on preventing them in the community. It's one of those sort of weird ironies about the way our healthcare system works, but you really need to, to read the story. It's an amazing, amazing body of work. Um, that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us too. If you have comments, you can email us. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Alice Olstein. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at Sager Katz. We'll be back in your feed next week with hopefully the, the year-end wrap. And in the meantime, be healthy.